Good morning. My name is Clive, as Anne's mentioned. I'm part of the leadership team here at Forest Town Church, along with my lovely wife, Sandra, who I need to say at the beginning of my sermon this time around gets more lovely every year. Um, in the traditional church calendar all over the world, today is being celebrated as Palm Sunday. Um, it is being celebrated as the day in which Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey. And it marks the beginning of what in the traditional church calendar is called Holy Week. The days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion as we head towards Easter. And the Bible contains a lot about what happened in that time. And this morning I want to look at a couple of, of things that happened during Holy Week, starting with what happened on Palm Sunday, as we call it now. Jesus didn't call it Palm Sunday then. It was just the day that he was on. I'd like to read to you from Luke chapter 19 and a passage from verse 29 to verse 40, if you'd like to follow. It says, As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, say, The Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners asked him, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, and when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in a loud voice for the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he said, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. To set the background for this, it's something that I... I find one of the, the most encouraging stories, but also one of the most challenging stories in the Bible. Jesus has been on ministry around the country for about three years at this point. He's been preaching, he's been performing miracles, the blind have seen and the, the lame have walked and the dead have come to life. He has encouraged people, he has been warm and teaching, and now he's heading towards Jerusalem. And as Jesus' ministry has progressed, the anticipation of the people in Israel had begun to grow. They had begun to expect that something very special was happening. And to heighten their excitement, he turns and begins to head towards Jerusalem. During most of his ministry, he was out in the provinces and sometimes even over the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But now he turns and he begins to, it says he set his face as flint towards Jerusalem, towards what was going to happen. And he begins to head towards Jerusalem. And although he tells people what he's going to do there, they don't listen and they don't understand. On several occasions, he talks about the plan of what's going to happen. But as he goes towards Jerusalem, there's an anticipation because the timing is great. He's going to arrive there on the Passover weekend. The context that we find this happening in is Israel has for many, many, many years been under the Roman rule. And the Romans have been an invading force that have taken over Israel, as has happened in their past many, many times. Beginning in the book of Judges, Israel has gone through stages where they have served God and they've been close to God and they have prospered and then they've walked away from God. And time and time again, somebody came in and conquered them. 
One of the ites and tites, as I call them, the Hittites and the Amalekites and the Philistines and all these guys would come. And they would go through a time of oppression and a time of being under the heel of an oppressor. And then they would cry out to God and God would send a savior. God would send someone like a Gideon who miraculously would change the circumstances and then Israel would get back to God and for a while things would go well and then when that judge was dead and gone for a while they would fall back into sin and they would be oppressed again to the point where eventually they were invaded by the Babylonians, taken into exile, came back again and before the Romans came and invaded them and took them over, the Greeks had been there as well. So they'd been beaten up lots of times and their expectation was when they cried out to God, God would send a savior. And so at this time, they're expecting a savior. And Jesus comes towards Jerusalem, which is the seat of Roman power at the time. That's where Pontius Pilate would have been. There would have been a garrison there. And the people in great anticipation, and they call about the son of David, the king that's coming. That's their expectation. That's the background. And as I've said before, when I talk about this time in history, they were right to worship and they were right to praise. So much so that Jesus, when he's told to tell them to keep quiet, says, if they kept quiet, even the rocks would cry out. Because what is happening is an awesome occurrence. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to fulfill the plan. He is coming to do the work of a savior. But the way he's going to do it is going to be very different to what the anticipation is. And sort of subtitle for this talk this morning would, could be who is actually on the donkey because I want to give you two announcements of who this person is to look at two different aspects of his character and then look at two incidents during Holy Week just to highlight something that we need to take into our lives quite seriously the announcement of Jesus's birth or of his coming to Mary we can read about in Luke chapter 1 and verses 30 to 33 it says this but the angel said to her do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary was told to anticipate Jesus. And Jesus comes from the Old Testament name Joshua, and if you look at the roots of the Old Testament name Joshua, two things come out. Hoshea, the deliverer. And Yeshua, he will save. And that's an aspect of Jesus which is absolutely firmly established before he even comes. His mother's told, call him Jesus. Call him a deliverer, one who saves. That's what he's coming for. But I want to read you another account that highlights another aspect of Jesus' life that we need to be very careful not to push to one side when we look at him as Savior. In the Gospel of John, the disciple who calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved, who was intimate with Jesus, who experienced that friendship and intimacy with him, when he starts his Gospel, this is what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he talks about John, the other John. And then he says this. He says, the true light gives light to everyone coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. 
Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And John presents an image of Christ when he starts his story, which is one of awesome power. He establishes that the word was with God and the word was God. He establishes the lordship of Jesus Christ. Nothing has been made that was not made by him. The light of the world, the life of the world resides in Jesus. Now Jesus came down to the earth to live as a man and prepared to serve mankind, but at no point was Jesus not Lord. At no point was Jesus, as he ministered and spoke to these people, and now when he's writing in, he was and is God. He can decide to allow things to happen like his, his crucifixion, but he remains the Lord. And so coming into Jerusalem was a Savior, but a Savior who is Lord. The word for Lord is the Greek word kuros, and it means supreme in authority and master. Riding into Jerusalem was their Savior, but also riding into Jerusalem was their supreme authority in their lives and someone who is there to be the overall authority and master in our lives and in their lives. And we can sometimes look to one aspect of Jesus' personality and seek that aspect of his personality and not look at all that goes along with that. Because when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he does not do what is expected of him. He arrives and you would expect that he would head off to where Pontius Pilate was. He would head off and go and negotiate or he would do whatever was needed there. But one of the first things we find recorded that he does involves the temple. His first visit is not to the courts of Pilate, but to the temple. And it says in Mark 11, verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, and it talks about the fig tree, and then says... On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, It is not written, sorry, is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And at that, the chief priests and the Pharisees began to plot against his life. We sometimes read the story as Jesus coming into Jerusalem going by the temple, happening to notice that people were trading there, going into a fit of anger and rushing through the place, overturning tables and casting people out. But if you read it carefully, he went in, he saw what was going on, he went away to Bethany because what, during Holy Week he slept outside of Jerusalem. That's why Judas had to tell them where he was because he would go outside of Jerusalem. They were plotting to get him when the people weren't around and sleeping at night in Jerusalem would have been dangerous. So he kept going out, either to the Mount of Olives or to Bethany and places like that. But he goes away. If you read in the book of John, he plats a whip, and then he comes back, goes into the temple, and clears it out. The first thing that he does has absolutely nothing to do with politics or the needs of the people in terms of their freedom and their oppression. The first thing he does is challenge what is happening in the place of worship in the temple, which is something which he 
links himself to. He talks about the grandeur of the temple and says, if this temple is taken down, it'll be raised again in three days, talking about himself. The temple is the place or was the place at that time where you went to worship God. You went to worship before the Holy of Holies. That's where your offerings were taken. That's where you did not go to worship at the synagogue. You went to the synagogue to teach and discuss. You went to the temple to worship. You went to the temple to take your offerings. It was symbolic of us coming into the presence of God, and it was the only place where God at this time would meet with them. And he goes to that place, and it shows the state of the nation of Israel. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's not interested in the state of Rome. He's not interested in what Rome is doing. He's not interested in the politics of Jerusalem. He's interested in how his relationship is with his people and how they see their relationship with him. And in the temple, it has become a place of trading. When you came to the temple, you brought a sacrifice. It made sense that if people didn't have a farm or weren't people who had their own things to sacrifice, that they would buy something to sacrifice, a lamb or a dove or something. And so the traders began to gather outside the temple and they would trade there. People came from all over the world to Jerusalem. They would have different kinds of money. So the money lenders came and started and you had a market supplying what would happen in the temple. And then they landed up in the temple courts in a place that he said was meant to be a place of intimacy with him, a place of honoring of him, a place of respect towards him, it becomes a place of trading. And that's the first thing that Jesus addresses when he comes into Jerusalem. Because he's not just the Savior, he's the Lord. And you know, we sometimes, with the best of intentions, depict Jesus as being constantly self-effacing, slightly apologetic. He's pictured in... Uh, middle-aged uh, paintings and so forth as a rather pale individual with a bedsheet and a sheep under his arm who's always just... If you look closely at Jesus, just do yourself a favor. Go and read through the Gospels and listen how Jesus speaks. He speaks imperiously. He doesn't walk past Peter, James, and John at the, at the side of the... Uh, and say to them, guys, I've got this proposition for you. I, I'm going to be going on this ministry and I'm looking for some good guys and you have a good cut to your jib. So here's the deal. Would you like very much to follow me? This is what I can offer you. He walks past and he says, follow me. And they have a choice. Do they respond to the call of the master, of the Lord? Do they do that or do they not? That's their choice, but it's on his terms. When he comes into the city and, and Zacchaeus is up the tree. He doesn't stand under the tree and say, Zacchaeus, we need to talk about whether you'd like to spend some time with me. This is what I can offer you. He says, come down, I'm coming to your house. Jesus is loving. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is intimate, but Jesus is Lord. And your relationship with him and our relationship with him is on his terms. With somebody who's absolutely committed to our well-being, but what had happened in the temple is they had changed how they worshipped. They had changed what they did in the temple to suit their lifestyle. It was more convenient to have the market inside the temple than to have it outside. It was more convenient to have these things on sale than to find them somewhere else. It was more convenient to have the money changes there. So they encroached on the holy place of God. And they did things in a way that suited them and in a way that was dishonoring. And for the first time, we see Jesus with a godly anger actually plaiting a whip, overthrowing tables, and driving people out and rebuking them. 
Meanwhile, Pontius Pilate and the Romans are comfortably sitting in their courts and their garrisons, and Jesus is paying no attention to them. That's not what he came for. He goes to the temple and he examines what's been going on there. First place of change was not in Roman practice or authority, it was in the integrity of worship in the temple. Jesus could never unbecome Lord. And I want to just refer to you. He'd shown this in what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. If you go and have a look, and it's a wonderful passage to read regularly. In Luke chapter 6, he says this in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Jesus was never looking for flattery. Jesus didn't need people fawning on him to boost his ego. When people called him Lord... For him, that meant I'm submitting to the supreme authority of my master. I'm here to do what he wants in my life. And he says to them, why do you keep saying that and you don't do what I'm saying? And he goes on to tell the story of the wise man building his house with a rock foundation and somebody else building theirs on the sand. And what on the outside looks like two identical buildings are flawed because one is not built on the authority of the Lord. So when he comes into Jerusalem, he begins to establish his expectations of Israel, not of the Romans and not of the politics, but of their relationship with him. What's the next incident I want us to have a look at? I'm not going to read this whole passage. It's quite a disturbing passage. But if you read in Matthew 23 and you go from verses 1 to 10 and 12 to 13 and then verse 15, you have Jesus absolutely ripping into the Pharisees. He goes for them in a way that he hasn't in the gospel spoken about people this far. He says to them that they are hypocrites. He says they do what they do. They don't practice what they preach. They tie heavy cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, loads they're not willing to bear. They, they do all these things and they look for people to respond to them and they introduce religion to the people. And he gets angry. At one stage, he, he says to them that they're a brood of vipers. He says they're like whitewashed graves, looking splendid on the outside. But what they're doing that brings this anger from Jesus again is once again they're perverting what he is seeking. What God has been seeking from mankind from the very, very beginning is a relationship of love and of trust in which mankind says, we trust you. We trust that your purposes for us are the best purposes, that your word is true, and therefore we'll submit and we'll believe you. And it's an intimate relationship about belief and love and respect. It's not about all the stuff that goes with it. And the Pharisees, and we've spoken about this before, had focused on that and had brought religion to the people. And Jesus, in the last week that he has before he's going to be crucified is still not even paying the slightest attention to the Romans. When people try and lure him into the Roman debate, they, they bring him uh, the question about whether should people should pay taxes or not, he very quickly dispenses of that. He gets a coin and says, Who's, whose face is on this? And they say, Caesar. says, well, give that to Caesar if it's Caesar's. But give to God what is God's. We often just focus on give to Caesar what is Caesar, and we say, what a clever answer. But he's saying, give to God what is God's. And they've not been doing that. And they've been taking the nation of Israel on a path that leads further and further from the truth of the relationship and the intimacy that God seeks with them. And he goes for this in a very, very intense way. They are not acknowledging that he is Lord. 
He comprehensively and forcefully teaches against religion and the religious practices of the day. He's angered because the Pharisees have developed a system to relate to him that is not what he has commanded. I want to say this to you. It's the right of every single person in the world to decide whether you believe or not that Jesus Christ is God. He's given you that right to choose. It's not your right to define what that means if you decide he is God. Everybody has the opportunity to choose. He's given us the right, freedom of choice, to decide whether we want to be in a relationship with him or not. You have the right to accept that or to reject that. What you and I don't have is the right to define what that relationship looks like and what Jesus should see as important or not important. And that's a very real challenge in our society that we live in. Think about the number of people who, when you speak to them, will say, I believe there's something out there. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Christian, but I'm seeking for spiritual enlightenment. I know there's something out there. There has to be some kind of God. I'm just searching for a way that I can relate to Him. And they'll, you know, Ant and I were in, in Nagaland last year with, with uh, Tony, Tony Johnson. Tony spent many years in India before he became a missionary as a seeker after spirituality, as well as being a drug dealer and a couple of other things that he was along that way. So God's done wonderful work in his life. But he was a Hindu for a while, and he was, he was a, what else was he? he? He was a Buddhist for a while, and I think he tried to merge the two together at one stage. And he was seeking for a way that suited him as a young man at that stage with his preferences to relate to God. Years ago, I was on a, a mission trip in a place called um, Pondicherry on, on the southeast coast of India, and we went into uh, this, this commune area, this a, a, ashram uh, started by a guru called Sri Aurobindo. And we went and sat amongst the people, and from, from all over the world were these people trying to find a way. You know, I, I remember I was sitting next to a bunch of, of people, I think they came from Australia, and they had dressed themselves differently, and they had painted themselves differently, and they were sitting there meditating in front of this tomb full of bones. And they were seeking for a way that satisfied them in their searching for enlightenment. And that's what was happening to the Pharisees, guys. It, it, it sounds like it's something completely different. But what they were doing was they were constructing a sort of faith under the old covenant that suited them in the way that it was practiced, that brought them gratification, that brought them recognition. And Jesus, in his incredibly pressured time, when these expectations have been, he's coming to Jerusalem with crowds throwing down cloaks and putting down palm branches and inviting him in, and there's a great expectation on him. He attacks the way that they are treating God's presence in the temple and the disrespect of that. And he attacks the efforts that have been there to replace the truth of what God wants with mankind with something that mankind chooses to have. That's what he spends his time on. And he, he's behaving at this stage as a Lord, saying it's time. He tells in this stage the story of, of the, the man who rented out his, his vineyard. And when he came to get what was owed to him, and he sent his servants, the tenants killed the servants and eventually killed his son. And he's saying to them, God is reclaiming what is his. God is bringing about the kingdom of God on earth. God is establishing the way for us to return to relationship in the way that God wants. And you cannot let what religion and disrespect and familiarity has done 
You cannot keep that in your life. You know, I used to say that when I was nine years old, I asked Jesus into my life. Now, you might use that terminology, and I don't think God's going to get you if you do. But actually what we do is we don't invite Jesus into our life. We give our lives to Jesus. The relationship we have with him is not one in which we say to him, Jesus, I really like a lot of what you got. You've got some really good points, some really good traits. So will you operate in those parts of my life where those suit me? The other parts of my life that I'm quite happy to run myself, in fact, I prefer doing it the way I want and the way that you want. So in my Bible, I'll just show you those parts of what I like. And can we walk with those together? We'll do it my way. We'll do it in a way that I can find tangible, a way that I... That's what was happening. And when Jesus would not fit into that, they began to plot to kill him. Straight away, they began to plot to kill him. And eventually, with him allowing them to, they did. The Lord became a savior. And I'm, I'm going to quote something which I'm on dangerous ground with because I haven't checked it out for myself yet. I only heard it from somebody yesterday. But he said this, and it'll be worth checking out. In the writings after the Gospels about Jesus, Paul and the people who are teaching the early church refer to Jesus just as Jesus about 25 times. They refer to him as the Lord Jesus over 600 times. When Paul introduces himself, he introduces himself as a servant of the Most High, as a servant of Christ. And the word is often interpreted as a servant, but it can just as well be interpreted as the word bond slave. Paul's focus, the early church leader's focus, was not on establishing a set of practices or something that was convenient to the culture of the city that they moved in, or something that was convenient to the, 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 the signs of the times. It was to bring the reality of their lives surrendered to Christ into that place. And when they got there, when they got to Philippi or wherever it would be, Paul would be saying to God, what do you want me to do here? Not, Lord, this is what I'm planning to do. Would you bless it? Lord, I have this plan. I'm going to hit this place first, then do that. I'm going to preach this sermon and do that. Paul's life was walking and saying to God, what do you want me to do in this place? My Lord. And as we head into the Easter season, I, I would like us just to think about the fact that this affects us so greatly in our lives. We, we preach a gospel which is true, which is we are saved by grace through faith and not of our works, lest any man should boast. And that is absolutely true. I cannot earn my salvation by anything that I do and I cannot make God love me one I owe to more by anything that I do. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That love was already there. But if we carry that through in our thinking to saying my salvation is through that and that's the end of the story, we're missing out on the fact that we are entering back into a relationship with our Lord and our Master and our Savior and our God and the light of the world who stepped down into darkness to fulfill his purpose and he gets to say how it works because we preach a gospel sometimes in the church international which says to people come to Jesus as the solver of your problems come to Jesus he will fix your marriage he will get you off the drugs he will get you a new job he'll heal you of your cancer and people come looking for a savior from their current problem but sometimes God will place his purposes 
above your needs. That's a reality. The Apostle Paul says three times he went to God and said, there's something I want you to fix. And God said, not now. My grace is sufficient for you. This is what I want you to do. And the trouble is if we preach a gospel and if at this time we, we only focus on the Savior and we should be so delighted that we have the Savior, but we forget the Lordship, we have people who come in to the kingdom of God and the first time that God doesn't do what they want, the first time someone they love dies, the first time they lose their job and they don't get the new one that they want, they say this stuff doesn't work. Because the role that God has in my life is to fix all my problems, to ride in on his donkey into my Jerusalem and to chuck out the Romans. And sometimes when he comes into your life, he's not interested in the Romans. You are. You want everything fixed. And he's not interested in your Romans. He's interested in your temple. He's interested in what he has planned for you. And so you wait for this thing to change amazingly and you wait for that thing to change amazingly and God brings something that you don't want to do and you do that and say, okay, God, now I can do what I want to do and God gives you something else to do that you don't want to do and you're still waiting for this great moment when your life will become hello trees, hello flowers, hello birds and you tiptoe through the tulips every morning and it doesn't happen. And then you get angry. You know what saddens me so much is there would have been people standing there saying, Hosanna to the king who quite possibly a week later were saying, crucify him. It always amazes me. There were 5,000 people at one of Jesus' miracles, 5,000 people who benefited from one of his miracles, 5,000 people were fed, 5,000 people saw him take five loaves and two fishes and turn them into an abundance of food which they enjoyed and there was left over. And yet, when Pentecost comes, we get given a number of people who are still following Jesus, 120. Where are the others? Where are the others? They're trying to find solutions for their Romans. They have become frustrated that Jesus hasn't conformed to what they expect. They've not enjoyed the experience. He's begun to take the money lenders out of their life and the marketplace out of their life. He's begun to come in with his whip that he's plaited and said, that thing doesn't belong there. And they don't like that. This isn't what we signed up for. We signed up for a man coming in riding like a king. So where, if he is my king, I should live like a king's son all the time. Guys, the Apostle Paul lists at one stage the things that he went through as somebody who understood Christ as Lord and Savior. Shipwrecks and beatings and stonings and hunger and cold and being lost at sea and all sorts of things. And there's the other risk we have of looking at that and saying, if that's what being a Christian means, I'm not so sure I want that. But at the same time, he raised the dead. He cast out demons. He brought people into a relationship with Christ. He was provided for. He was sustained. And at the end of his life, he was able to say, I finished my race. I've run my race. I finished it. He's given me everything I need to do what he intends for my life. Guys, I've got to tell you this. Our goal is to fulfill God's purpose for us. Our goal is not to have an easy life. Some Christians have an easy life, some don't. I don't know why, but that's not the most important thing because God is not that interested in your Romans. He's interested in your temple. 
He's interested in your relationship with him. That place where he is sovereign and where he can say to you, this is my plan and purpose for your life. And you say, if that brings me into great riches, fantastic. If that has me doing amazing miracles and, and having a poor preach so long one night that a guy fell out a window and died. Okay, we have it easier. Ant is not like that. <laughs> and we're on the first floor. It's all good. But Paul was able to go over to that young man and embrace him and have him come to life. How awesome is that? Do you want that? Paul was able to look back on so many things, as were those who followed him as disciples, and say, we saw him do this, we did this with him. But it was not because that was what they always wanted as their first choice. I want to say to you that you need Jesus as your Savior. But you need Jesus as your Lord. Lord and Savior. There's an encouragement there because I don't want to make you go, this is, this is, you do need to think soberly about what you're doing as a Christian. But I want to say this to you. Who would you rather give total authority in your life to than a person who loves you with a love that is unimaginable? Who knows every little thing about you from your greatest hope to your greatest fear to your greatest talent to your greatest slur on your on your past. We've all got something we're hiding away that we hope no one finds out about. And that person knows you intimately and loves you and has a plan and a purpose to walk with you on this earth, to have a race that you run with him in which he sustains you and empowers you and enlightens you and unleashes you on the world with his anointing to change the world. Who, why would we not want that? Why would you want a paramedic? And you can have an all-encompassing Lord that can provide everything in your life. Why would you want just a few things fixed up in your life when you can walk in intimacy with God, get up with Him in the morning and go to sleep with Him at night? Paul can say, I've learned to have nothing. I've learned to have everything. I've, and I have found that the one thing is to know Christ and to know Him as Lord. So I want to say to you, He's coming into your town today. And if you haven't yet made him your Lord and your Savior, when you make him your Lord, he becomes your Savior. But I want to say to you, would you not like to open up your life to him in a way that says to him, you deal with the Romans when it's your time. Right now, I want to be doing the things that you want because that's what he's looking for. That's what he's looking for. A loving Father, a loving Lord, Yeshua, Joshua, the one who redeems us and saves us, but the Lord, the supreme authority in our lives, the Master. And from that place of strength, we can walk with Him on a daily basis. And when those things that bother us, bother us, I don't know about you, but I've got some stuff, I don't know why God hasn't figured it out in my life a long time ago. I gave my life to Him when I was nine years old. There's stuff that's still in my life that bugs me. I'm saying, Lord, when are you going to fix it? And when is it going to be easy? And when am I going to do just those things that I want to do? You know, there's certain aspects of ministry I love. There's certain parts of stuff that God's called me to do that I keep going, Lord, next year can we stop this? <laughs> When's the time, Lord, that it becomes easy and it's just the good stuff? Hasn't happened yet. I live in hope. But that's the path that we've, we've got laid before us. A Lord who knows what the priorities are. A Lord who knows how valuable we can be in His hand. 
Our Lord who knows that if we listen to that, we can get to the point where Paul says the greatest thing that you can say about your life. I've run the race. I've finished the course. I've done what was sent for me to do. There's so many people that have made a lot of money and they've made no difference in a single person's life. You can walk into the kingdom of God, into heaven's gates one day, and you've brought one person with you. <laughs> I don't care what Bill Gates has achieved. If your testimony, your commitment to Christ, your submission to his lordship has brought someone with you, what more could you possibly, possibly want? So look forward to Easter. He's going to be our Savior. He is our Savior. We're going to celebrate Him as Savior. We're going to celebrate the incredible offering that He made for us, His death and His resurrection. We're going to rejoice on Resurrection Sunday. We're going to sing about Him stepping out of the tomb. And we're going to love that. And we're going to eat chocolate. And all these things are fantastic. But every single day, He's available riding into your life, into your Jerusalem, saying, here I am as your King. What are you going to do with me? Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. And yet we so often just take and take and don't listen. And we say, Lord, Lord, and we don't do what you say. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in our Savior and to rejoice in our Lord. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light because you give us the strength to do all things through our Lord and Savior who strengthens us. So, Lord, would you show us the path? Would you... Would you show us your plans in our life? Would you be all that you want to be? Would you give us the courage to allow you to do that in our lives on a daily basis? Thank you for this time that we can celebrate. Thank you for the wonderful gift. Thank you for the plan that you have. Amen.